It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. Today we talk spring, specifically baseball, because I promise weather spring will be here eventually. Evan Woodbury is here to talk about the season preview of the Tigers. Let's jump into it. As I said, our guest today, Evan Woodbury, talking about Tigers. And as always, my co-host, the one, the only, the fan of Cracker Jackson baseball, John Heiner. How are you? I am awesome, and you're hitting the nail on the head, Eric. Thank you for that introduction. I'm going to give you my one of my uh, patented uh, behind-the-headlines quizzes. I cannot wait. Okay, true or false, the first day of spring is Groundhog Day. That is Well, I'm born on Groundhog's Day, so that is false. <laughs> first day of spring is St. Patty's Day. Also false. Right. Also false. What is the first official day of spring? Uh, I believe it's March 20th. No, it's April 8th. It's opening day for the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> Even though more often than not, it's snowing or something on April 8th in Michigan. But we've got uh, base, Tigers baseball coming up, Major League Baseball. And uh, this is made, I don't think it's a secret to anyone on this call because we talked about it before. But um, one, the top sports topic writer in our entire company in M Live happens to cover the Tigers, not the Lions or the Wolverines. Um, it's a little interesting fact about Michigan sports fans. And so today, to commemorate the upcoming uh, first day of spring, in my mind, and the opening of the Major League Baseball season, is our Tigers beat writer, Evan Woodbury. Good morning, Evan. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm going to assume that you are in sunny Florida. Is that correct? Yeah, just outside of Lakeland and uh, enjoying a semi-off today, but uh, it's the sun is shining as always. Well, there's never an off day for a, a Tigers or Major League Baseball writer in the spring, especially this year. Uh, how did you survive the lockout? It was it was not fun, to be honest with you. And it actually reminded me of, of those months when baseball was uh, off the grid during the, the COVID season in 2020. It's because it's just it's uh, it's not a fun feeling to be a sports writer without sports or to be a baseball writer without baseball. And I think more than anything, the uncertainty of whether there would even be baseball this year uh, was really, uh, you know, kind of a apprehensive for, for everybody. At the end of the day, as frustrating as that whole scenario was, I mean, they are going to play a full season. They're going to start on April 8th, which, you know, let's be honest, not having baseball in, in late March is not the worst thing in the world for those of us that live in northern climates. So, what could have been a really horrible uh, situation, possibly even the, the loss of part or all the season has, has turned into, fortunately, not, something not as, as grave as we feared at, during those low points during the winter. Well, I never lost hope, which is probably the hallmark of a Detroit sports fan anyways, <laughs> that, this, that, that we'd have some form of a season. I, I was surprised that, that we were able to get a schedule of 162 games. So uh, it just – practically how are they going to shoehorn that all in are they moving the playoffs back or what's going on it's going to be difficult they've they've added three games on to the end of the season uh and the new playoff format has some travel advantages in the early rounds so they're not going to have to take as much time they're having a bunch of double headers and that doesn't even count the the 
inevitable rain delays and rain outs that we're going to have that are going to tack on more double headers, you know, starting as, as soon as August. So it's going to be a, probably the most crowded season as far as number of games in number of days than, than we've had in a long time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's it's if you're a baseball fan, there will be baseball just about every day. The, the off days are going to be few and far between. And even the off days that are on the schedule right now might not be off days once we get a couple of those those April rainouts that that always come. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting year. It's going to be a taxing year on the players. <laughs> but we're going to have baseball pretty much every day from from now until early October. Well, if you need reinforcements, get, send up a flare. <laughs> we'll send out for you. You're going to have a very, very busy year. Um, any lingering effects from the lockout that you see uh, now that you're around players and, and, and coaches and the administration? I don't, I don't think so. And I think because the collective bargaining agreement lasts five years that it, any, you know, hard feelings will be long forgotten in, in five years, just because the, the lifespan of a, of a player's career is so short. Anyway, I think, I think the interesting factor is one, you know, perhaps a disconnect among players because the executive council, which is made up of the highest paid, most veteran players, voted overwhelmingly against the final deal, whereas the players as a whole, as a group, uh, including, you know, all the younger players, the lower paid players, voted overwhelmingly for the final deal. So I think that it revealed a disconnect. And I think there was a disconnect among the owners, too, with some of the biggest market free spending owners uh, in one camp and some of the other owners in another camp. So I think those are kind of bubbling beneath the surface. But, you know, the fact is there's a deal that I think is probably as good a deal as the players could get under the scenario. It hasn't radically changed the economic structure of baseball. It's pretty much the same rules that we've lived under for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. So, and and by the time the next blow up comes around in five years, this, this will be a distant memory. So as I wrote though, that I think, and I still agree with hundred percent, the, the biggest risk to baseball is not that fans were really, really angry about all this is that, fans stopped caring about all this. And I still think that's, that's true today. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there is some repair work that needs to be done, you know, whether it's teams or players or a combination of, of both. Um, and, you know, and it probably says this is an important season in that respect that, you know, there are some lingering bad feelings from, from all the drama of the off season. You know, and we coming through COVID, the, the really compromised year we had with only 60 games and, things like that. And when there, I think there was a little bit of that concern, like, will you lose fans? Will the interest, then you get all these great young players like, you know, Acuna and Guerrero and Tatis and all these guys come and baseball seems really exciting again. And once we're playing, it seems like that some of that uh, worry washes away. I hope so. And I, and I think that'll be even more magnified or potentially even more magnified in Detroit. That's why I felt like it was such a missed opportunity. All the drama of this winter it's for Detroit, for the Tigers more than just about any other club in baseball because they had garnered so much enthusiasm right before the lockout uh, with the signings and, and literally getting Javier Baez at the last second before the, the lockout hit. And then, you know, the, normally that's a golden opportunity to promote him, promote the, the new players, promote all the excitement going into the new season. And instead you just have three months of, of total radio silence where not only are they not promoting, they're legally not allowed to even mention his name, uh, for, for more than three months during the lockout. So, I, I mean, I think that was a missed opportunity for a lot of teams, but certainly for Detroit, which is trying to, you know, shed the the years of rebuilding and, and kind of telegraph to fans that, hey, we're competing, we're, we're, we're get, gunning for the playoffs once again. Uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I think 
the the early returns as far as fan interest this this spring has been positive from my perspective it's been you know when we look at the traffic it's been one of the most encouraging springs since i started in 2016 as far as fan interest so i think that'll still be there but i do think it was a missed opportunity this winter where where you had teams that were literally not allowed to mention players names for for three or four months of the winter yeah you mentioned the fan interest and i think that it's interesting you i we watch readership numbers to all of our topics as you know and last year, and I'm going to give you a ton of credits. You do such a good job. But last year, we saw the the you know the the tide rising on audience, and we, we've we've laughed about this before. I've made you know joked with you about it. Like you can write something about a former Tiger minor leaguer who now is optioned the third time, some obscure outpost, and you know get read, gets read by thirty or forty thousand people. Uh, and you've tapped into something with fan interest. And I don't know if it's the arrival of Hinch. I don't know if it's some of the, you know, uh, Torkelson and Riley Green and the young players, Mize, that are coming up. But what do you attribute that to? Uh, do you think it's the undying, you know, hopes of the of the Detroit faithful? Or do you really think that they're on, the Detroit Tigers are on to something and fans are picking up on that? You know, I think it's, first of all, I think Detroit's a great baseball market and Michigan more, more generally is a great baseball market. So I think it's, you have a, it's a, it's, almost a regional market for the Tigers uh, just because I think the, the interest goes so far beyond Detroit. And I think it's, it's a great baseball uh, market with a lot of not just current interest, but historical interest going back generations, going back, you know, fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers. So I think that's really important. And I think, you know, the couple of years out in the wilderness with really bad teams, increase the focus on the younger prospects out of necessity because the the product at the major league level was so terrible. Uh, and now you're finally seeing some of those prospects start to, to bear fruit. And I mean, let, let's face it, that it's, it's, there's so many talented young players in baseball right now. And two of them are going to be on the Detroit Tigers uh, probably on opening day, but if not on opening day, very soon thereafter in, in Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green, I think that's, that's a huge factor. And I think, we're all guilty of overhyping prospects, fans, media, everybody. But the reality is that a lot of the Tigers' success or failure this year is going to be on uh, on the shoulders of a 21-year-old and a and a 23-year-old. And you know that's that's kind of rare and kind of exciting, just because it, that's uh, you know no one really knows what's going to happen. Uh, but if they're as good as advertised, I think the Tigers can be really good this year. If they fall flat on their face, the Tigers are going to underachieve and they're going to be a lot of disappointed people. And I think that that kind of sports drama uh, really speaks to people. What about the 37 or 38-year-old guy who <laughs> makes about $30 million a year? Who makes about 60 <laughs> times what uh, what Riley and, and uh, Spencer right. Torkelson will make this right. year? Uh, honestly, I, I think it'll be interesting. We've seen – I've always said it's going to be very delicate – diplomatic dance that A.J. Hinch is going to have to do over the next two years as far as how he gradually decreases Miguel Cabrera's role uh, as the Tigers get better and the Tigers start to have better options and and every game starts to get more important. Uh, We've seen, I think, the very first small step. He's going to be batting fifth in the lineup, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but he hasn't batted below fourth since 2008, which is an incredibly long time. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of, it's not, it really doesn't matter in the whole scheme of things, but it's one of those psychological things that you've been moved down in the lineup. Right. I, I, I like the way he, he handled it. He didn't make a big deal of it at all. He just said, like, we had a talk. Miguel's fine with it. 
And, you know, we're, we haven't talked about it since. It's not a big deal. Um, but I think we're going to see more of that. I think, you know, as other options come into play, if Miggy's struggling after he's reached 3,000 hits and some of the fanfare has died down, you know, maybe we see him playing on more of a part-time basis and including that going into the next year. But a lot of it has to do with what the other options are on, on the team and, and where the Tigers are in the standings. And um, But, you know, I mean, I think it's we're kind of – morphing into that retirement send-off phase of his career that we saw beginning last year. And I think that's just going to continue this year. Well, watching Albert Pujols, <laughs> you, you kind of wonder how long you could stretch it out. I mean, he's a different case. He's, I mean, they're, he and Cabrera, both are Hall of Famers. But uh, Pujols apparently still thinks he has some stuff in the tank. And there's a DH in the National League. So he came back to the Cardinals. Any thoughts on that? I, I think it's interesting. I, I actually do think – Miggy and Poolholtz, their career arcs are incredibly similar, um, and more so than, let's say, David Ortiz, who actually had some of his best years at age 35, 36, 37, 38. Nelson Cruz, who's still hitting ridiculously at age 41 or whatever he is now. Um, whereas Poolholtz and Miggy have had different career arcs where, you know, frankly, the production dropped off pretty dramatically after age 34 or 35 or so. Uh, <laughs> Pujols has not gracefully exited stage left on, <laughs> at the end of his career. And, and no. you know, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer, and a lot of guys still want to have him around. I used to think that maybe Miggy would be that way as well, that would hold on to the, the very bitter end. I, I'm more now of the camp that I think he'll gracefully bow out after next season, uh, maybe even a very slim chance before the end of next season, just because I think, you know, he's – the body is not allowing him to do what he once did. I think, you know, when you're in pain every day and sometimes, you know, it's, it's, you just rather go watch your kids play soccer games than, than go out and, and put your body through the ringer every single day for 162 games. I think that's probably catching up with him. And I think that'll, that will hate, that will eliminate any thoughts about, well, maybe do I want to come back for my age 41, 42 and, and 43 seasons like Pujols has done. Well, yeah. I question, I mean, it's, it's, clear that Cabrera wants to get to 3,000 hits. I was at like 13 or 21 or right. 13, 13 away. Yeah. So, he, you know, barring injury, he'll get that early in the season. But, well, you know, my favorite Tiger of all time, Al Kaline, uh, you know, he ended up with 3,007 hits. I mean, that's the kind of thing boys remember. Uh, but he also finished like 399 on homers and in his batting average career batting average went under 300 as he was chasing the 3000. I think finished by like 297 or something like that. Is there any tarnishing of legacy that happens if you stick around or see is, is it already kind of cemented that he's one of the all time greats? I think it's, I think it's probably cemented. that I think because he started his career. So, you know, at a relatively young age, I mean, he was an elite player and we talk about young players in today's game. I mean, he was the version of that, you know, 20 years ago, because he was putting up ridiculous numbers at the age of 21 and, you know, winning World Series at a, at a very young age for the Marlins. Um, so I, I think he's the type of guy that could have retired at the age of 34 and gone into the Hall of Fame five years later. He had put up the kind of you know, numbers at that point uh, that, that would allow him to do that. The contract, the, the second contract that he got from the Tigers has allowed him to to stay in the game maybe longer than he would have if his deal had come to an end at the age of 34 or 35. Uh, and, you know, and in that sense, I think even at the time, people kind of saw that second contract as almost like a lifetime achievement award, like, you know, to, rewarding you for your good years that, 
the Tigers are going to take care of you through through the retirement years. And I think, although the Tigers certainly would have hoped for more production, you know, Miggy's been basically a league average hitter over the last few years. So it's not like he's totally fallen off the the map. It's just, you know, it's it's no longer the the production of his prime. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an MY podcast. Today, we're getting excited about the start of the Major League Baseball season, the return of the Detroit Tigers uh, to Comerica Park. And our guest is Evan Woodbury, uh, the M Live beat writer for the Detroit Tigers. And we're talking Tigers. It's fantastic to do that. Uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Evan, uh, about the lot in, in terms of the lockout. We were talking about kind of the haves and have nots or two tier system there of the veterans, uh, the high the high contract veterans, and the, the you know the the younger players, but also the the really rich owners and the and the the, the low salary teams, the lower salary teams. And it reminded me of something I read recently that ranked the team ownerships by wealth. I think Toronto Blue Jays were first. Uh, they're owned by like Rogers communications or something, but uh, Steve Cohen for the Mets has, you know, in the top five and he's made it known he'll, he's going to spend, he's going to pay the luxury tax, but the Illages were like the top five or six. And, you know, I know that, the plan they've had is something like the Astros did where, you know, you, you got the payroll, you get young players, you trade, you build the farm system and all that. But are we getting to a point? Cause I think on this podcast last year, you said when they see the glimmer that they, you know, they're ready to go and be competitive, they might spend. Do you see any of that coming? Well, I, I think Steve Cohen is an interesting case to mention because I, I think he was one of the owners that uh, in the camp, the big spending camp, that wanted to decrease or even eliminate limits on payroll spending. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the owners were not real fond of him because he's, he's kind of like the traditional owner's worst nightmare and that he's a mega billionaire who has bought the team as kind of a plaything of sorts and doesn't care how much money he loses, wants to go out and sign all the big stars. He's, he's the type of owner that every fan loves, probably every media member loves, but that the other owners absolutely despise because he's not playing by the, the traditional rules of, of budgeting and balance sheets. He's just going out and, and treating the baseball team as, as his plaything and, and going and trying to sign all the stars he can. I think that the challenge, you know, probably the Illiches collectively wealth-wise are not all that far from the stratosphere of, of the Steve Cohens of the world. The problem is that Christopher Lich is the controlling owner rather than an individual owner. He's the controlling owner on behalf of the family. And I think there are a lot of, you know, hands in the pot. And that typically happens on the second and third generations of, of family ownership is that you don't, you don't have, you have kind of a multi-headed monster of sorts. And although Christopher Lich is in control and kind of the spokesperson for all of it, I think it's, uh, I don't know that he can spend as freely and lose as much money as freely as, as like a Steve Cohen would. On the other hand, though, I think the encouraging signs are that the Tigers have gone out and spent. Every, the, the big question was, when will this extra spending happen? At what point will the Tigers say, okay, it's time to flip the switch and, and open up the payroll again? Some people thought it was when Jordan Zimmerman's contract came off the books. That coincided with the COVID year. They pushed it back a year. Um, and, and now went out and got Javier Baez, made a very competitive offer for Carlos Correa, didn't get him. Probably if Correa could go back in time, he would have signed with the Tigers right. before the lockout. Right. Uh, probably if the Tigers could go back in time, they would have waited on Correa and signed him after the lockout. But, you know, those all those things are 2020 hindsight. But I think the, the spending has opened up. 
the the Tigers are still going to be about middle of the pack payroll. I don't think they're ever going to go back to the old days where they were a top five payroll team, but I think they might get closer to that in in the years to come. And especially when when Mickey comes off the books in a couple of years, that's going to open up a lot of financial freedom that the Tigers have not had for long, a long time. Well, and that brings us to the, the part of this we did last year too, which is reality check for fans because you know. At some point in the season, there'll be a couple games out of the playoff picture, and we'll get our hopes up and stuff. But you taking the long view from 30,000 feet, where are they at in their return to competitiveness? I saw another article that, that made eight tiers of baseball teams by competitiveness for playoff positioning. They had the Tigers like in the sixth tier, which wasn't really super encouraging to see. Also noted in the seventh tier were the Nationals and the Cubs. So it also tells you when you go on those spending binges like the Tigers did from 2006 to 12 or 14 or whatever, there's a price to pay for that. And you got to cycle through. But in the big picture, they're clearly on the way up. But where are they in in terms of a return to true playoff competitiveness? That's a really good question because a lot of the, you know, call them algorithmic predictions or, or the, the modeling systems that are very popular, like with baseball prospectus and fan graphs, a lot of the, the sabermetric and analytic stuff uh, has the Tigers in last pay, place, quite frankly, uh, you know, in, in the central division behind the, the Guardians and the Royals and teams that most fans expect them to be ahead of. So I, I think the way the Tigers finished last year combined with the signings this year, this winter combined with the arrival potentially of Green and Torkelson, has really inflated fan expectations that are not matched by by maybe the the reality. I, I do think. I mean, if the Tigers go to the playoffs, you can you can name AJ Hinch the manager of the year, maybe name Al Avila the general manager of the year, uh, and I don't think it's totally out of the question. But I think probably 500 is a better barometer for this team as far as if they hang around 500 uh, for most of the season, if they hang around the playoff race until the late summer. You know, and, you know, maybe they're close enough that they decide to go make some moves at the trade deadline. Maybe they maybe they make things interesting down the stretch. I think that would be a victory. What would be a, you know, the the opposite of that would be something like last year where they got off to a horrible start. And then, you know, all these expectations, all these good vibes, uh, all all the positivity comes crashing down pretty quickly. I think that would be the worst case scenario. I, I think if if they hang around in the race until the late summer, hang around five hundred until the late summer, I think most people would be happy with that. Just because it's been, you know, it's been six seven years since the Tigers have credibly been part of a, a playoff race, and I think even being on the periphery of a playoff race would be would be a step up this year. Yeah, one thing about it crashing down last year is I got a lot of great seats at low prices at Comerica Park. <laughs> <laughs> it's still fun to go to ball games, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it. I think it. Last year's uh, turnaround kind of caught some people by surprise because they started off so horribly and and were pretty much out of it by early to mid May. That I think a lot of people lost interest, and then suddenly they looked up in in June, July, and August, and it's like, wow, this this team is suddenly playing really good baseball again. So I mean, it was it was. Uh, you know that's that's why I think though those those early season tailspins are dangerous because you do risk losing losing the the audience losing the fan base and squandering a lot of the the good feelings and and momentum from the off season. That's why I think and even AJ Hinch has said it's it's important to get off to a good start this year. They can't have a repeat of last year. They they really need to uh, you know for everyone's sake, not just fans and but but players as well. You know, get off on the right foot this year and, and show that they are going to be a contender. 
Real quick, because it's so important to those kind of prospects anyways, pitching staff, um, what's new? What I mean, the, the young guys, the uh, Scooble and Mize, and they got a lot of time on the mound last year. Uh, is, is, the, is it demonstrably better with the signings? And, and look, looking to you with the eye test, what you're seeing in spring training. I really liked the, the signing of Eduardo Rodriguez at the time, and I, I still think it's a great signing. Uh, I think he's going to be uh, a really – he's going to be an asset not just this year but years to come. Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal are interesting because they, they took a really nice step forward their sophomore season last year. It's time for another step forward this year. It's a, it's that basically, for, I think, especially for Mize, but even for Skubal as well, it's, it's a chance to say, okay, are we going to be – kind of middling back of the rotation starters, nice guys to have on your team, but not stars by any means, or they're going to take that next step and be potentially front of the rotation starters. And that's a huge factor. Manning, Matt Manning is where Scooble and Mize were a year ago. Right. He's looking to take that step forward in his sophomore year. And I really, I mean, honestly, as, as strange as it sounds, I might put Matt Manning as probably the third most important player on this team as far as, the difference between him being really good, being average, and falling flat on his face uh, is going to have a huge impact on on this year's team because the Tigers are putting a lot of trust on him. He, he hasn't really delivered in the big leagues to this point. They're betting on his future and giving him a spot in the rotation, really with, with no competition this spring. They've handed it to him, which they don't usually do. Right. Uh, so I think it's it's his his chance to, to answer that and, and kind of make that same jump that Mize and Scooble made a year ago. But are you seeing the velocity issues that he had uh, crop up late last year? No, I, actually, I mean it's been a really positive spring for him, and and I, I don't know, I just it's you you notice the change in his mentality, his maturity, his his confidence level. Um, I'm I'm a little bit bullish on and Manning, and I wasn't initially. I, I thought they should bring in someone to compete with him and at least make him uh, fight a little bit harder for the job. But I've been really encouraged by what I've seen in spring and. You know, it's a long, long season, but he's another guy that getting off to a good start just for his confidence, I think, would be huge uh, because you don't want to be at May 1st where Manning has had three or four rough starts. And then you have to say, OK, do we do we stick with this or do we send him off to Toledo and, and see what else uh, there is? That's not where they want to be in, in May 1st. And, you know, that's why I think it, it's a it's an important month of April for him and a lot of the younger guys. So what's different in the game this year? We talked about the DH in the National League. Uh, there's the three, three batter role for pitchers, which I see, uh, reading about managers shuffling lineups and doing stuff related to that, but what will fans see that's different this year or should be aware of going into the season? Well, they, they are going back to nine inning double headers or two games of nine innings. That's significant because there's going to be a lot more double headers this year. That was a COVID era rule, uh, to reduce double headers to seven innings a piece, when they were playing the doubleheaders back to back, I didn't really mind that. I thought that was fair because fans were paying for nine innings, getting 14 innings. I thought that was a good deal. Where I didn't like it was when there was a, a day-night doubleheader where they had a doubleheader of seven innings, then they cleared the stadium, then they had another doubleheader of seven, another game of seven innings in the evening. That to me seemed unfair because fans were paying for nine and, and getting seven. Uh, so I, I like the change, although I'm not really looking forward to sitting in a stadium for 18 <laughs> innings a number of times this year. Uh, they've, they're also expanding the roster by two players, and that's kind of a big move. That's something they did occasionally during the COVID years just to account for all the, the absences. They're doing it this year in the month of April just to account for the shortened spring training and the fact that they're worried that, you know, obviously 
the pitchers won't be as prepared. Pitchers are more susceptible to injuries. So you're going to have some really large rosters. Uh, it's going to be like September in, in April where you have a, a ton of, of uh, young players or a ton of players in the bullpen, ton of pitchers. Uh, and some teams may use them for extra bench players. So it's just going to be a little bit different just to uh, account for the, the shortened spring training. Anything different for the fan experience around Comerica or anything that you're aware of that's happening with the promotions or anything the Tigers are doing? I, the Tigers are unveiling in a couple of days. They've got their annual press conference where they unveil the new, new widgets and new food items and, and all that. But as of now, I don't know. I, I know that it's probably been a, a challenging off season for the ticket office in the sense that they've lost some sell, sales opportunities and they've also lost some games on the front end. But I think, the Tigers may emerge from this better than than most teams because originally April 8th was going to be home their home opener, but it was going to be like the eighth or ninth game of the regular season. Now their home opener will be game one of the regular season. And so it'll be a true opening day home opener uh, in Detroit, which, um, you know, in that sense, the, the schedule change kind of worked in the Tigers' favor. And, I mean, the reality is April 8th is usually a lot nicer than April than March Thirtieth. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're still you're still rolling the dice a little bit on the weather, but it, your odds are a little bit better on uh, on April eighth than they are in, in late March. All right, Eric Culkin, I'm going to do something you advised me never to do, which is to put you know <laughs> prediction put predictions on tape here. But I'm bullish. I'm a, I'm bullish on the Tigers. I like AJ Hinch. I like what I see how they're building the roster. Evan and Eric, I've got them in second place this year and playing until the last couple of weeks of the season for a playoff berth. I'm just feeling good about it. Um, yeah, my heart's been broken so many times it doesn't matter anymore. So I'm just going to be optimistic. Uh, Eric, Eric, where you got him? Oh man. I, I mean, you seem like you're, you're like Dogecoin bullish on, <laughs> on the Tigers. I don't, I don't know that. I, I don't know that I can quite join you in that club. Um, I don't know. I feel like they. I, I will go. I will say this. I will join you halfway. I will say they make the playoffs this year. Wow. All right. Okay. Let's go to the pro. Okay. <laughs> let's turn it over to Evan. Let's. What do you got, Evan? My, my official prediction is still to come, but it is going to be. It's going to be in the neighborhood of of five hundred. Uh, I, I just. I think. I was. <laughs> I think uh, the Central Division has very quietly gotten more difficult. The White Sox are going to be really good. The Twins have gotten better. And I think people forget that just, you know, before the, the pre-COVID season, the Twins won 100 games. They were very good and kind of fell on their flat on their face last year. They've got Carlos Correa. They've made some good additions. Uh, the Guardians haven't completely fallen off. The Royals have a young player who will rival Spencer Torkelson and, and Riley Green and, and Bobby Witt Jr. So it's going to be a tougher division than people realize. Uh, and that's why I, I, I'm not able to predict the playoffs just yet. But I think I think they will be improved. I think they will be in the playoff race through the end of the summer. And I think they'll ultimately finish somewhere in the 500 range. All right, Evan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for putting the official stamp that is now spring, uh, not March 22nd or whatever. It's goofy. Uh, it's when baseball starts. <laughs> uh, I'm so happy to see you down in Florida and uh, to know the Tigers are coming back for opening day on the 8th. And thank you for joining us on Behind the Headlines this morning. Get us stoked about the season. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. And there they go. Huge thanks to Evan and John, as always. If you like what we're doing, make sure you like, subscribe, and share wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week, he is John Heiner. I am Eric Halkren, and this is Behind the Headlines.